Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> so last last night, uh, Howie gave a, a lovely talk on uh, emptiness and on that Sakaya Diti, diti uh, imperse- the um, false view of personality and taking ourselves to be real. And, um, and this morning, uh, with the big mind uh, meditation, I hope you um, appreciated that other perspective where everything is just arising out of the space of awareness. Um, and so on both of those, uh, we've been talking about emptiness and about how um, seeing through the, uh, the limited view of us and other. And that meditation, um, uh, by the way, was, was adapted from a Tibetan uh, um, body of wisdom, the Tibetan Book of Great Liberation, and Joseph Goldstein originally did that adaption, and we, uh, many of us, really find it helpful to, in our own way, to share that uh, that perspective. <clears throat> but that's only uh, part of the bigger picture. Emptiness is a transformative understanding and by emptiness by empty uh, just to clarify it doesn't mean you don't exist it's just that we are um, not intrinsically solid um, entities to whom life is happening but we are life expressing itself through these various forms and there we are there is an there's em, things are empty of a unique separate self when you look at that bigger picture that it's all interconnected it's all just life playing with itself as i speak right now it seems like it's james and all of you but another way to think of it is it's just life talking to itself through these various forms as uh, brian swim the wonderful theologian cosmologist says uh, we are a star's way of knowing itself <clears throat> and so there it's empty of, of 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 anything that keeps us separate on a bigger view and it is transforming because you see that we're all it's all interconnected everything that's here and everything in this universe was once a singularity of the Big Bang. And here we are talking to ourselves and to each other. So I wanted to talk about how emptiness actually leads to a greater connection and caring for others and for this world in that same body of teachings, the, in the Tibetan teachings, awareness is spoken of as um, empty like the sky, that metaphor that we did this morning, uh, wakeful and conscious and um, connected, the union of emptiness and wakefulness, uh, compassion naturally results because we realize we're all connected. Or as one, um, one uh, phrase puts it, um, awareness is um, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. And there's a beautiful talk, a couple of talks, I think, by Joseph Goldstein with that title, if you want to uh, hear his take on it, which I, I highly recommend. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. 
That's the Tibetan terminology for understanding this mysterious awareness that knows, that shines through us. And it's important to understand the relation between the two. Again, this is from Padmasambhava, the, the great Tibetan yogi who is, uh, is credited with bringing Buddhism from India to Tibet. He says, though my view, and that means my understanding of the nature of emptiness, though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. Though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. You can't just go around saying, oh, it's all empty, so what does it matter? Who cares? It's all just coming and going anyway. And in fact, I'm just remembering somebody, I was there, fortunate, when, when somebody asked the Dalai Lama, if you have a, a choice between a deep understanding of emptiness and the law of karma, uh, which, which, would you, which should you go for? It's like the trick question, you know. And the the Dalai Lama, without a, a, a hesitation, said, the law of karma. Because if your understanding of emptiness is not complete, then you can be doing some very unskillful things, misunderstanding how actions have consequences. But if you have a very deep, respect and practice for the law of karma, you will be continuing to purify yourself and eventually open up to the the deepest understandings and, and wisdom. So I want to talk about how this understanding and perspective that we are touching here leads to um, that Uh, ceaselessly responsive heart. And I'll just say another couple of words, again, um, um, building on uh, on, uh, the talk last night where Howie talked about becoming and and bhava and how any kind of um, acquiring and attachment to things being a certain way is grasping and leads to suffering. And that is true. It's very important. The second noble truth, the cause of suffering, is attachment. And as he pointed out, and the question came up today, kind of keeps kept it in my mind, somebody asking, is this as good as it gets? And on one level, it is as good as it gets because this is this moment right here. So to wish for a better moment right now, you are creating frustration and karma. If this is the way it is, you can either wish it were different or um, come to to terms and embrace the moment as it is and react in a, respond in a wise way. But at the same time, even though this moment is just this moment and can't be improved upon, our response to this moment, our relationship to this moment can deepen as we understand so that we truly can meet it with wisdom and kindness instead of frustration and wanting. And that gets deeper over time. That's why we call it practice. You know, if we were just bound to be how we are, okay, this is how I am and this is how I'll be till the end of my life, then why practice? 
there's a, a, a term in, um, again, in a, another Zen, uh, this is a Zen teaching uh, that uh, this great Zen master Shanul talks about. He says, sudden awakening and gradual cultivation. That you can have a deep understanding and see the emptiness of everything. And it's powerful, transformative. And, and I know some people, it's been beautiful to see uh, a number of people have been touched by just a new perspective. Oh, I didn't see things like this before. Oh, maybe I'm, I'm an okay person in here. Oh, wow, there's goodness around me. Or I'm not who I thought I was. And maybe you touched on that, that understanding of the empty, the selfless nature of this body and mind. But seeing that is not enough. You're not finished with the process because when you see it, although it's transformative, you still have patterns of behavior and uh, ways that you get caught in grasping. Have you noticed even though you know better, there you are, I have a, a talk on Dharma Seed. I know I'm stuck and I still can't get out. You know? <laughs> and it's really humbling to, to know it all and there you are just doomed, uh, you, you think, to keep on repeating the same. When, when I, will I learn holding on to suffering? Sooner or later you learn. And it takes patience and practice because those patterns have been going around and, and developed for quite some time. And so there's a gradual cultivation where there's a purification that takes place. And it can be very humbling because once you see it, you can't pretend. That's one of the, one of the prices that you pay once you see, you can't pretend you didn't know. But from a karmic standpoint, it's better to see and know that you're making mistakes than not see at all. Because if you don't see, then you're doomed to keep on repeating those mistakes, acting out of greed, hatred, and delusion that just keeps you deeper in those habits. But when you see and you say, oh my God, goodness, I can't believe that. Just seeing and feeling the pain is, can be a motivation I want to change. On one retreat, I, just, I was doing a metta retreat, and, you, and as we said, that sometimes metta brings up um, all the, the stuff that got in the way. And on this one retreat, I saw all the awful things that I'd done in my life. And I just, ooh, oh, Ooh, you, I, 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 I men, I've mentioned this. I said, I was, it was so bad at one point, I said, okay, I'm going to write down the 20 really awful things I've done in my life. <laughs> I was so fortunate I picked that number because I could only come up with 17 <laughs> really bad things. But there I was cringing. Oh, oh no, no. And then it occurred to me, cringing is a good sign because it means you're no longer the person that could do that. So we're in a process of learning and cultivating, and we're developing wholesome qualities over time. And it takes patience to understand this process takes a while. As uh, this is from Ramdas, understanding this process of purification, he says, as you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you go towards each inner temple, but of course the light gets brighter too. So as you see through this sense of self, little by little, you're a, a bit more free until you 
not only understand it here, but embody it. And then there's a whole other inspiration to um, go in the direction of greater awakening and freedom. There's a, a beautiful teaching from the Zen master Dogen that I love, very famous teaching. He says, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. So let's just unpack that in case you say, oh, it's one of those cryptic Zen things. I just, <laughs> I just missed it. Oh, no. Okay. But I think you'll get it. We'll just slow it down. To study Buddhism is to study the self. To practice the Dharma, this is your laboratory, this mind-body process to understand what it means to be human. This is the one you've been given. Uh, I mentioned it in one of the groups, the Buddha has this line, in this fathom-long body, did I say this in the, the bigger thing? In this fathom-long body, give or take a foot and a half standard deviation, fathom is six feet, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. So this is your laboratory to understand the human experience. You study this self, you study you. To study and to practice, to study Buddhism to practice is to study the self. To study this self is to forget the self. That is, once you see through who you thought you were, you see, oh, what was I making such a big deal and hoping everybody will accept me or that I'm okay or good enough? You start seeing, oh, as, as Howie said so beautifully, you know, you are a perfect expression of life that's never been here before. You don't have to worry if you're good enough. There's never been another like you. You're just fine who you are. To study the self is to forget the self. Forget being so self-conscious. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. There's no separation and you feel that connection with all of life around you. So, <clears throat> as you are more and more awakening, how to create the container for deepening this understanding of the empty nature of who we are and to connect with others and to be intimate with all things. And one of the containers that the Buddha talked about that we did, we took at the beginning of the retreat is the guideline of non-harming. He said, this is the basis for a... Um, for inner peace. And so we took those precepts, not killing, not stealing, not harming through sexuality, not causing suffering through speech, and um, not abusing substances. My attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. And basically, that spirit of non-harming hopefully you're getting over the course of these days, really comes down to an attitude of kindness. As the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. It's so, it might seem so elementary. It is. Actually, Sometimes I think that you can put the whole of the Dharma in what you were told when you were very young. They said, didn't they? Pay attention and be nice. That's it. That's the whole Dharma right there. But it starts with that kindness, deep kindness towards yourself and I hope and, I, and I've seen uh, it's been lovely to see we've all been so appreciative of how 
transforming it is as you are more and more kind to yourself. It's not cheating. It's the way. It's the secret. Because when you can hold all the pain and the sorrow inside with compassion, then you're not fighting yourself. And you see who you are beyond your flaws. You see, there's something beautiful in there. Robert Bly has this line. He says, um, by the way, Ramona, you're, you're not, it's warm enough, so don't, don't make it, yeah, okay. You want to make it, a, is it warm? Yes. So, okay, a little cooler. Okay, that's good. I just wanted to make sure we had, we had a signal whether it was going to be too cool. I was afraid that she was going to make it warm. So just so you can make it a degree or so cooler. That's great, thank you. We'll be cool together. So Robert Bly has this, uh, has this line I love. He says, every part of our personality that we do not learn to love will become hostile to us. If we are afraid of our anger or our loneliness or our sadness, that becomes the enemy. But just like a mother or a father embraces the whole of the child, even when she or he is having a tantrum, you don't say, come on, get it together, kid, and relax. You might. Yeah. <laughs> you might feel like saying that, but it won't do so much good. It just needs to be held. I'm, I'm just remembering when Adam, my son, who's now 30 and who's very wise in his own right, when he would have a meltdown when he was like, you know, three or, or so, we had this little ritual. And uh, when I remember, and he was, he was usually open to it, I said, um, would you like to tell me to tell you the people who love you? And he'd say, yeah. And I'd hold him and I'd say, Mommy loves you, and Daddy loves you, and Grandma loves you, and Aunt Susan loves you, and he just start melting. That's what we need. So to, to embrace the whole package is really one thing that I hope you're learning here, and that means metta for your body. If you have a hard time with that, whatever reason, it's not cooperating, and it's serving, it's doing the best it can to serve you. It doesn't need your scolding or your anger or your frustration. It just needs your love, and it responds to that. That's the basis of healing. Or to your mind that does its own thing and is subject to its own patterns. It was such a, a relief in in my own practice when I realized at one point I have no control over this mind. And when I hear, say that to people, sometimes they say, oh my goodness, that's awful news. <laughs> it's actually great news because if you don't have control over your mind, you don't have to blame yourself for what comes through it. If you had control over your mind, you probably have loving thoughts of blessing everybody, but probably a few others slip through there. But you see, it's just doing its own thing. It can be trained, but to blame yourself for whatever thought comes through at any time is really misunderstanding and taking ownership of the, this mind that just is subject to causes and conditions and its habits. To your heart, to your emotions... So, just to see your, your, the whole package in terms of needing to be understood, first held, and then the possibility of training and transforming and cultivating all the beauty inside. Because along with all your neuroses, there is a really beautiful heart. There's something, no matter how much self-judgment you have or how much doubt you have or how much, oh, I'm not good enough for whatever your particular flavor of neurosis is, there's, been, there's something in you that's pulled you all the way through from the beginning 
that has brought you to do this very strange thing that we're doing here together because you love the truth or you love an open heart or you love goodness. There's something in there that keeps you and has pulled you through everything to bring you where you are, realizing, I want to wake up. And so to get beyond your small thoughts and beliefs and judgments, hold them, embrace them, but don't let them run the show. As I, as I often say, I said to somebody today, if you feel here that fear is running the show, this is what I do, I'll give you a little of my secret teaching. If fear is running the show, you know you're headed for trouble, right? So I take it out of the driver's seat, put it in the passenger seat, put a seatbelt around it, put a helmet around it if it needs it. I don't want to throw it out, it's too freaked out as it is. And I say, I respect you, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll honor you, I'll, I'll take care of you, but you don't get the keys to the car. And I just, when I can, let, let wisdom lead the way. And that means really listening, learning how to listen inside. How do we listen inside? It's, it's kind of simple, and uh, I'll, I'll move on in a moment to the bigger picture, but just want to make sure you... I'll give you another transmission that I got last year from, from Ram Dass, who is one of my main teachers. <clears throat> Here's a little tip. I was visiting him, Jane and I were visiting him in, in Hawaii, and I was telling him about some issue that I had my own take and somebody else had their own take on, and you know, just kind of wanting to sort this out. And he listened to me, and uh, as you probably know, he he doesn't have he doesn't speak many words these days after his stroke about 20 years ago. But what he says is just um, golden sunshine. And he looked at me and he said, "It's really very simple. You simply need to make the journey." from here to here. And when he said it, it just, it was so, it was so powerful. Of course, I was getting lost in my right and thoughts and rational thinking and all of that, and I was not connected to here, to this place that I knew to be true inside. And I said, oh, can we do that? Again. And he said, sure. And we did it a few times until it got anchored. And I'd like to do it with you. A very simple journey. From here, here's the, the conceptual mind trying to figure things out. And you want to honor it because there's a good, it, it has some good thoughts. But sometimes it gets confused in trying to figure out things and gets contracted but going from here down to here where there's kindness and love, where there's clarity and hearing the truth. Can you feel that? From here down to here. That's the journey. Third time is a charm. Here down to here. So that helps us listen to what's inside and also hold all the craziness in a whole different way. And as we bring that kindness and compassion and understanding with this, then we can also apply it out in the world because we realize that uh, practice is not only about ourselves. And every time we make a mistake, there's a humility 
that have you seen it? It's humbling to know better and still mess up. Don't let it be wasted because humility, as I say, it's good to be humbled every now and then, not as a steady diet, but every now and then to just get you off your self-righteousness and to apply it to the world. As, uh, let me see if I can find this. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Every time we blow it can give us a deeper sense of understanding and compassion for how others can blow it particularly people who have not done any practice at all or looked at their own minds, looked at their own hearts. And as we are more realizing that we're all connected, we want to make a difference in the world. This is not just for our own peace of mind. This is Nyoshal Kempo, great Tibetan master. He says, we're not practicing for ourselves alone since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is really secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, and transformed in us and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. That's why we're practicing as much as for our own inner peace to make a difference in the world. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi, the premier translator of uh, the Pali Canon. If you look at all the thick books, the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses and the long discourses and the connected discourses, a lot of translation. And yet he is in the last 10 or 15 years become a a really strong activist. And he wrote this essay called A Challenge to Buddhists. He, he created this organization called Buddhist Global Relief that has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars for um, uh, world hunger and for um, uh, education, particularly girls in, um, in, uh, in under... Uh, privileged uh, and uh, underserved communities. He has this gate, girls, something, uh, training in education. Um, Anyway, this is his essay, A Challenge to Buddhists. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that, in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives, can present only a resigned quietism. He ends, it's a beautiful essay, I'll just read one more piece. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. 
I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. <clears throat> So, how to apply this to the world? You might have noticed that there's some suffering in the world these days. There's always been suffering in the world. It's the first noble truth. But it seems even more so as one good friend of mine, wise friend Roger Walsh says, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. We're in a race between fear and consciousness. And consciousness wins out over fear. Love is much stronger than hate. But we're in a race because time is running out and we're in just such a, an interesting time. There's never been as much self-destruction, human-caused self-destruction as there is on the planet right now. And there's never been as much consciousness as there is right now. Uh, Paul Hawken wrote this book, Blessed Unrest, when he, he wanted to take a look at all the, all the movements that were happening, good, uh, noble social movements, and he found between one and two million organizations trying to make this a better world. That's encouraging. Hmm? We are in what one... Um, one of my inspiring teachers calls the dark night of the species. If you're familiar with the famous Saint John of the Cross, dark night of the soul, which is part of the, the, the journey here. You go and face your most confused, um, lost places, and you come out the other end. That's part of the deal here. I talk, talked about it the other night. Because suffering wakes us up. And right now, that's what humanity is going through. Uh, dark night of the species where we are being forced to wake up. And yeah, there's a race. The way I see it though, we're going to wake up sooner or later. So why not do everything we can to wake up sooner rather than later? and have much less suffering. There will be suffering. There is suffering and it will continue. But why not do everything we can to make a difference? So how can we apply what we've learned here out there? Because you see all the insanity going on. You say, oh no, not more. And you can decide whatever your favorite um, um, target is of that not more. Um, but to get caught up in hatred does not help the situation. As a very famous teaching by the Buddha says, Hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. Hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. The Buddha said in one discourse, a simile of the saw, it's called, Majima, I think it's 21, Majima Nikaya. He says, if bandits were to capture 
you. This is going to the end of the, the discourse. He says, if this happens to you, it's kind of a drag, don't come out with hatred. Come out with love. And then if this happens to you, still stay connected with love. The end of the discourse, if bandits were to capture you and start sawing off your limb, this is a high bar. (laughs) One who follows my teaching will not be succumbing to hatred. How can you do that? How is that possible? Well, first, keeping in mind that hatred never ceases by hatred. And that when you are angered and filled with outrage and hate, of course, that's part of being human. But to act on it or to put out more into the field, how is that different from some, somebody who be, might be spewing hate? That's where the humility comes in. And Solzhenitsyn says, oh yes, the line cuts through the heart of every human being. Oh, I know what it's like to hate because there I am feeling it right now. How to do it a different way. First, I'll I'll share with you uh, some words of Martin Luther King. One of my favorite lines of his is, you have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. You have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. Pretty good, isn't it? And as he said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. And so it goes, returning violence for violence, multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Same as the Buddha. I have a whole lot of quotes about the power of nonviolence, ahimsa. That was his main weapon. How can you imagine actively going and knowing you're going to get beaten and saying, This is my weapon? I'm going to meet your hate with love. There they were, this at embodying the simile of the saw. He says, the nonviolent approach does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something to the hearts and souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage they did not know they had. So, Coming out with, with kindness and love doesn't mean being, uh, being a, a, a namby-pamby, uh, weak, weak one. It takes courage to meet hatred and anger with, with love and not give in to that, that hatred inside. And it takes what's called fierce compassion. You can be very fierce we need fierce, compassionate warriors to say no when something is not right, but not to come from hate. How can we do that? First, to understand how somebody is the way they are. This is 
one of the keys to wise response, a compassionate understanding, understanding that people have their own conditioning and we don't know what makes somebody the way they are. This is from Nelson Mandela. You might have seen after Charlottesville, Obama uh, tweeted and he quoted from he quoted Mandela, and it was. It turned out it, it became the most t- retweeted tweet of all time. <laughs> and I'll read the whole passage, uh, including the part that Obama tweeted. This is Nelson Mandela in prison for 27 years. He said. I never lost hope that this great transformation would occur in his, in his country. Not only because of the great heroes I've cited, but because of the courage of the ordinary men and women of my country. I always knew that deep down in every human heart, there is mercy and generosity. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background, or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Those lines were the ones that he tweeted. Even in the grimmest times in prison, when my comrades and I were pushed to our limits, I would see a glimmer of humanity in one of the guards. Perhaps for just a second but it was enough to reassure me and keep me going. Man's goodness is a flame that can be hidden but never extinguished. Now you might say, I don't know if everybody has that in them. There's some very hateful, angry people. We're taught to do metta for the difficult. How can you wish somebody who causes harm, happiness. Somebody asked me that yesterday. If you're, true, if you're wishing for true happiness, that is not that they get everything they want, but that they understand where real happiness is to be found, then they won't cause harm and suffering to others. So you're wishing for them to truly understand and wake up. Now, It's hard, especially in these days when there's so much hate. And I want to, um, I'm going to take a a risk. What do they call it? Uh, uh, Trigger alert? Trigger, what? Trigger Trigger warning. Trigger warning. I just learned that from from Dawn uh, today. Okay. Uh, Because I want to bring into, uh, I want to bring into the field our president. Maybe he's come into your consciousness sometime during this (laughs) talk. And I also want to acknowledge that there are a third of the country that really are, uh, really are inspired by him or are hoping or seeing, uh, saying yes. So everybody has their own perspective. But one thing that's probably most people can agree on is that he did not respond um, in perhaps as skillful a way uh, after Charlottesville and that there is some, maybe some blind spots when it comes to um, dealing with racism and things like that. And if I offend you with what I say, please forgive me. But what I want to give this point is that hatred never ceases by hatred. And understanding why someone is the way they are can make a difference. One thing you might not realize is that in 1927, Donald Trump's father was arrested in the newspapers. It's in the newspaper newspaper. and, and here's a little reprint of the newspaper, uh, when there was uh, the, a Klan the, uh, rally in New York with a thousand 
clan members and supporters uh, battling against police. And seven people were arrested, including Fred Trump with his address. And in that time, the Klan was very powerful. They almost nominated um, the president, uh, presidential candidate for the United States uh, in 1924, and they lost in the convention, 400, I looked it up today, 421 and two-thirds vote, 420 and one-third vote to 421 and one-third vote. And they, there's a picture, 50,000 Klansmen going down Washington, D.C., marching in their robes in the 20s. So it was really powerful. And Donald Trump's father was arrested as one of the seven people battling police from the Klan side. And as well, uh, you might be familiar with this, uh, in 1979, uh, there was a civil rights suit, no, it was 1975, that um, alleged the Trumps refused to rent to black home seekers and quotes a rental agent who said Fred Trump instructed him not to rent to blacks and to encourage existing black tenants, tenants to leave. The case was settled in a 1975 consent decree described as one of the most far-reaching ever negotiated complaining, uh, the Justice Department complained that continuing racial discriminatory conduct by Trump's agents had occurred with such frequency that it created a substantial impediment to the full enjoyment of equal opportunity. And this, so this is the conditioning that it came in. This is from uh, the, the, the book Trumped by John O'Donnell, who worked for Trump. And he recalls, he writes in this book, Trump and he having a conversation. And Trump says, I've got black accountants at Trump. He was, there was a black um, uh, employee that he wanted uh, out who was an accountant for him. He says, I've got black accountants at Trump Castle and at Trump Plaza. Black guys counting my money. I hate it. The only kind of people I want counting my money are short guys that wear yarmulkes every day. Those are the kind of people I want counting my money. Nobody else. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, this guy said. But Donald went on. Besides that, I've got to tell you something else. I think that the guy is lazy, and it's probably not his fault, because laziness is a trade in blacks. It really is. I believe that. It's not anything they can control. Don't you agree? He looked at me square in the eye and waited for my reply. Donald, you shouldn't really say things like that to me or anybody else, I said. That's not the kind of image you want to project. We shouldn't even be having this conversation, even if it's the way you feel. Yeah, you're right, Trump said. If anybody ever heard me say that, holy shit, I'd be in a lot of trouble. But I have to tell you, that's the way I feel. Causes and conditions, causes and conditions... I uh, mention this in, in, in my book about a, a poster that I, that I saw in the University of uh, UC Berkeley of this very sad boy. And the caption said, a child brought up, raised in a, in a home with domestic violence is 700 times more likely to uh, experience domestic violence in their adulthood. And you can extrapolate either on the giving or the receiving end. So when I read that, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. Who's to blame? Who's to blame here? It's just causes and conditions and conditions and causes. And having that kind of understanding gives you at least some sense of why somebody is the way they are. We're all subject to causes and conditions. And when you see it that way, it's a little bit easier to remove the blame. And you stop the hater, but you don't hate them. You somehow hold them in their heart, in your heart, and wish that they can awaken at some point 
and you do everything you can to stop it. And what makes a difference is realizing that your own wise response is inspiring to others as well. If you say, oh, what's the point? Then, and throw in the towel and we're all doomed, then nothing will, then you'll just be adding to the despair. But if, if you see the possibilities, then things are different. This is from, John, um, from uh, Howard Zinn, John Kabat-Zinn's father-in-law, who wrote The People's History of the United States, The Unwhitewashed History. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. To see the good, to look for the good, and to express your fierce compassion with love, with understanding, with compassion, without hate. That's what we're called to do. And it's a tall order. I get it. But if we can't do it, who are we hoping will? We, we've been practicing here. We are agents of consciousness. And as you've been touched by probably teachers that you've heard or read or inspiring leaders, you touch others as well. And then holding hands together, you have what uh, Mandela called the multiplicity of courage. It's not your business to save the whole world, but it's your business to go underneath the outrage and the anger to the place that really just cares and loves And that in itself awakens that in others. There's a contagion of goodness that happens. And this is why our practice is so crucial, not just for ourselves, but for everyone. The bodhisattva ideal, where we are practicing not just for ourselves alone, but as Noshul Kempo says, for everyone held in this scope of benefit to all beings. So I'll close with this poem from Dana Falls, another Dana Falls poem called Sangha. Teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders each for the other and for all, that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous. To stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown and facing yet another fear together, that is nothing short of grace. So let's sit for a moment.
hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred ceases by love alone. This is an ancient and eternal law. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.